You always hear people during a hot spell in the summer say, thanks global warming in a sarcastic tone, or more actually thankful during a warm spell in winter. But if you are at all well versed in the phenomenon of climate change, you know that a single event doesn't signify that it's happening. Rather, it's the longer term aggregation of events that reveal the truth. Trees are believed to be important in mitigating climate change, but what is climate change doing to them? Will it be as simple as changing our climate zones and maybe growing lemon trees in Niagara? I'm Shauna Doby, editor of Canada's local gardener magazine, and this is Flora and Fauna. I talked to two experts from Davy Tree recently. Dan Herms is the Vice President of Research and Development, and Joe Steinfeld is in Urban Forestry and Arboriculture at their Toronto office. I spoke with them separately on separate days, but I pieced together what they said for you. First, I've heard an awful lot about Davy Tree, but I've always wondered just what exactly they are. As Dan tells me, the company does, well, just about everything you can think of to do with trees. So Davy Tree is a large full-service tree care company. We operate throughout the United States and Canada. We were founded in Kent, Ohio in 1880. Wow. And we provide services that range from residential and commercial tree care to commercial landscaping services, which where we maintain large properties like campuses, military bases, golf courses. We provide, uh, we service utility corridors, line clearance, vegetation management, and we have an environmental consulting division where we focus on urban forest management and as well as well as natural area management. So uh, endangered species management, uh, stream restoration, wetland management and mitigation, invasive plant management. We're a, a, a large, diverse company with about 11,000 employees and annual revenues of about uh, 1.5 billion US dollars. Mm-hmm. I've heard of Davy before. Now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> Joe fits into the urban part of this equation and here's what he had to say. I'm the manager of urban forestry for Eastern Canada at Davy Resource Group. We are a division of the Davy Tree Expert Company of Canada. So my division provides consulting services in arboriculture for clients across Eastern Canada. So that's everywhere uh, from the prairies on east to the Maritimes. And what we cover are anything that clients require as far that doesn't involve tree pruning or removal. So that would be arborist reports to assess people's trees, uh, provide risk assessments, plan around trees for construction. So we do a lot of tree preservation planning. Uh, We also provide a lot of on-site services like root excavation, root pruning, treatments and inspections after construction. So we try to provide more holistic services to ensure the preservation and continued growth of trees on people's properties and wherever else people have trees. You guys do so much. A lot, yes. (laughs) We We try to do everything that the guys in the trucks don't. A little bit more of my background. Uh, So I am originally from the U.S. I was born and raised in New Jersey. I went to Rutgers University. I graduated in 2011. Um, So my my schooling was in forest ecology, and my first work experience was in forest preservation. So I worked for a land trust that took in donations of properties or easements of properties where people would set aside tracts of land that either they owned or would be donated either through trusts or from town, you know, ownership to the state. And we would, you know, maintain those properties and build trails, put up signage, do natural heritage surveys. Then I started working for Davey about nine years ago, almost 10 years ago now. I first worked in tree inventory you know, surveys. So I would travel around the entirety of the U.S. taking inventories of street trees and park trees and any public trees that municipalities own and maintain. 
And that allowed me to see just about all the corners of the U.S. and learn all the species that can grow throughout North America. Continued that work uh, up into Canada starting in 2017. So I have, you know, worked on projects in five different provinces now, pretty much from coast to coast. That's taken me all the way from eastern Ontario all the way out to B.C. pretty much. So Joe started in forestry and then moved into urban trees. If you ever thought they were pretty much the same thing, well, they aren't. Here's what Dan has to say about it. Urban trees are generally have been planted. Uh, They may or may not be native to the area. They may or may not be well adapted. They tend to find themselves in environments that are different from where they evolved. So soils are different, moisture's different, heat regimes are are different. There's a lot of differences between urban trees. They may have made, you know, they're generally planted, so they haven't grown from seed. That further tends to complicate, you know, their adaptation because trees that are grown from seed, you know, if they've made it, they made it because Mm -hmm. they are tolerant of that environment. So, you know, they get weeded out. Urban trees can struggle along uh, but if they're planted well and they're, and they're selected well for the site, they can thrive. Pest complexes tend to be different as well in urban environments. So, you, you know, there's a whole suite of insect and arthropod pests that outbreak in urban environments that just never do in a natural forest because they don't, you don't have the natural little balance of nature in an urban environment that, you know, helps uh, provide stability to um, insect populations in a natural forest. And so, you know, when it comes to climate change, then all of these uh, factors are aggravated by kind of the rapid change that's occurring in the environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the precipitation regimes and other things that are affected by the, the warming climate. I know how urban trees protect our quality of life or affect our quality of life. What do you recommend for urban tree coverage in a city today? Well, there's a couple different ways to answer that. And so, yes, trees affect our quality of life in in kind of complex and maybe surprising ways that are, you know, just now starting to become appreciated. So they have an impact on the environment. Trees are very important for uh, mitigating impacts of of climate change. And they're also important for adaptation and resilience to climate change because they shade the environment, which reduces urban heat and cities tend to be hotter than the natural or the surrounding green areas. They reduce stormwater runoff. And in the Eastern United States and Canada, heavy precipitation events are increasing. So you stormwater runoff and the stuff that stormwater carries into our sewers benefits from trees that reduce that runoff by intercepting rain, slowing it down, setting it back up into the atmosphere. Cleaning water and returning it to the atmosphere is one of the most important things that trees do. Well, trees and soil. But without trees and plants, you don't have much soil for very long. I'll put it as simply as possible. Tree and plant roots hold soil together. When it rains onto a vegetative area, the rain seeps into the ground and onto the plants. Some of that evaporates back into the air. In the ground, the water is either taken up by plants or it seeps further down into the groundwater. What is taken up by plants goes back into the atmosphere through transpiration. Plants don't transpire mercury and heavy metals. They just give the atmosphere normal water molecules. When it rains onto roads or parking lots or tennis courts, the rain runs off either to the ground or more likely to sewers, taking all of those pollutants from the street with it. Those sewers deposit the rain and pollutants directly into a lake or river, which pollutes that water. Of course, trees sequester carbon and Mm -hmm. store carbon so they contribute that way. They filter pollutants from the air. And there's a there's a number of recent studies that have emerged showing that trees are in the city are really important to human health and wellness, and that health and wellness outcomes are are better when people live around trees. And um, crime is reduced in areas with trees. People that are you know interesting study showing that people that are in hospital rooms and they can look out and see trees and green spaces, they recover faster have better outcomes. 
So, you know, these are all really important benefits that that trees provide. You know, and, and another thing about trees in the city is that these benefits are not equitably distributed. There are especially in larger cities, there are areas that just do not have a lot of trees. The trees were planted and um, they weren't maintained and they haven't been replaced. And so you have areas, particularly in inner, inner city areas, disadvantaged neighborhoods that just don't receive the benefits of urban trees that people in um, higher socioeconomic uh, areas do. Nobody is saying that poverty can be solved by planting more trees in economically disadvantaged areas, but think of what putting more trees in those areas would do. You know, this always makes me think of Robin Hood. He cavorted in Sherwood Forest, where he would steal from the rich and give to the poor, as legend has it. Maybe that's what we're afraid of, that if more trees are planted in low-income neighborhoods, the people who live there will become thieving communists? Maybe that's it. What would you say is the favorite street tree in Canada right now? It's the Norway maple, unfortunately. Really? <laughs> well, you, I mean, you asked favorite. So do you mean the most common or the, the most ideal for planting? What are cities now planting? Are they still planting Norway maples in some places? I hope not. I really hope <laughs> not. Uh, however, unfortunately, I still do see that. And sometimes I, I see that more on the fringes. I, we did a project up in Northern BC in Fort St. John's a couple of years ago. Mm. And what we saw were a lot of plantings of nori maples because, and this is also related to climate change, though they are in a, in a much more Northern climate, they're in one of the lowest hardiness zones. They are now able to plant some of the species that are more common closer to the Southern border of Canada. So we were actually starting to see some nori maples be planted. However, they are, as everyone should know, a non-native and in many places an invasive species. Now, as far as favored trees for planting go, I, I would say the top three are honey locust, linden, and elm. And all three of those species are native to North America. The honey locust is a weird one. Uh, I like to think the honey locust is a bit of an orphan species. It's one of the species that most likely once grew widespread up into Canada, but during the mm -hmm. ice age was pushed down into, you know, the lower 48 of the United States down into the Ohio Valley. Okay. So, so honey locust, what else did you say? Lindens? Lindens. Little leaf lindens or all lindens? Little leaf or, or, or basswood. So basswood is the Tilia americana. That's the mm -hmm. native species of linden. They are often hybridized with other varieties, with European varieties. What you'll often see are Redmond lindens, which are a hybrid that are grown for planting in streets because they have a very singular upright form. But there's other varieties that get planted. And little leaf lindens don't have a, an invasiveness characteristic to them. They don't escape cultivation. They don't, you, you won't find a little leaf linden growing out in the woods anywhere in Canada. Mm -hmm like you would see with nori maples, for example. And the same goes for honey locusts as well, which is another, you know, positive of those trees. Uh, and then the last one is elms. Is it the American elm? I wouldn't say they've worked out a complete immunity to mm -hmm. Dutch elm disease, but there are a multitude of resistant species. And resistant meaning they are just enough of an American elm to look like an American elm. But they have characteristics bred in from, you know, other species, most often Eastern Asian species. And those species, I would say, I think Japanese elm and Siberian elm get bred into American elms in order to provide genetic characteristics that, you know, favor resistance to Dutch elm. And, mm -hmm. you know, a common variety is pioneer elms, uh, homestead elms, and accolade elms are some of the you know, the most common street tree varieties that we see planted. Oh, okay. And those, those you'll find at a lot of uh, nurseries around Canada, like across Canada, but wherever you go in Canada, the local nurseries will have the varieties of American type elm. And I like to just call them American hybrid elms that are ecologically suitable for growing in these, whatever area you're in, while also having that Dutch elm disease resistance. Because absent the Dutch elm disease fungus, which is carried by bark beetles, as you know, people know, like they, they feast on stressed trees, they crawl under the bark, they 
tube through the vasculature and they kill the trees from the top down. Absent that disease, the American elm once reached from, you know, the eastern slopes of, of Alberta all the way out to Quebec and, and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So you can plant an elm just about anywhere in, you know, the main provinces of Canada. It just depends what variety you get. If one was shopping for an elm, I would highly recommend it as a shade tree. It's an ecologically very important tree. They're very tolerable, I would say. They, they do well in cold weather. Uh, depending on where you are, so long as you're buying locally. And they're one of the one of the easier trees to deal with, I would say. Honey locust hasn't proven itself to be hardy enough in the prairies yet, but I bet it will in the coming years. Joe says that tree is nearly indestructible and you can't go anywhere in the U.S. without seeing it. The third most common street tree in Western Canada, I would say, is different varieties of maple. I'm basing this on my quick scan of city-owned trees in Winnipeg, Regina, and Edmonton. We're going to take a very quick break right now, but we'll be back. Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and fauna are new e-digests coming weekly... Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. We're back and it is time to get into climate change. I asked Dan to comment on the subject. So they're kind of, you know, you're my, the trees are migrating north, which is to be expected. They've always done that, migrate back and forth as the glaciers advance and recede. But the climate's changing a lot faster now than it did in response to the glaciers. When you say it's changing faster, can you give me an example of that? So the climate has warmed two degrees Fahrenheit on average over the globe, or about 1.1 degrees Celsius on average, the surface temperature since the beginning of the 20th century. I'm going to use Fahrenheit if you don't mind. Go ahead. Two degrees Fahrenheit may not seem like a lot. Most of that warming has occurred since 1980. Uh, But consider this, the difference in the temperature of the earth between the coldest period of the last ice age and the warmest period of the interglacial that we're in now is nine degrees Fahrenheit. And Mm -hmm. so it took about uh, 10,000 years, you know, for that nine degree shift to occur. We've seen two degrees in um, the last 40 years. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's an unprecedented rate of warming. And then the question is, can trees naturally migrate fast enough to respond to that rate of warming, and uh, that that's an open question. Uh, you won't get any arguments from me about climate change, but I do know that some of our listeners have gone the way of a number of people who really do question the legitimacy of climate change. Do you have anything to say to them? Well, I would say that the evidence is overwhelming that the climate is warming. You can see that in the instrument record. You can see it in the melting of glaciers. For example, in the United States Glacier National Park, at about 150 glaciers when it was founded in the early 20th century, only has about 25 left now. So ice is melting everywhere. The Arctic ice is is shrinking. Insect species are moving north. So the, the, the physical, biological, and instrument evidence that the climate is warming is overwhelming. Now, then the Second question really to address is what's causing that warming. Right, right. And so the various natural causes that the natural forces that could be causing warming have been examined in great detail. So, for example, one obvious potential cause is the sun. Mm-hmm. So is the sun warming? Well, satellite measurements since 1979 have been monitoring solar radiation, and it has not increased. In fact, on average, it's decreased slightly during the last 40 years, while the Earth's temperature has been increasing. And furthermore, the Earth's atmosphere has been warming from the bottom up. If it was caused by the sun, a heat lamp, it would be warming from the top down. Mm-hmm. But it's warming from the bottom up. It's consistent with a blanket that's that's trapping heat. Other potential causes, people have pointed to volcanoes and the amount of carbon dioxide they emit, but that's trivial. The amount of carbon dioxide emitted by volcanoes. So, for example, 
studies, peer-reviewed studies have shown that you would have to have a, an eruption on the magnitude of Mount Pinatubo, the last major eruption that we experienced. You would have to have an eruption like that twice a day, every day for an entire year to match anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. So they've looked at ocean vents. Air pollution is actually having a cooling effect. Glaciers are caused by changes in the Earth's orbit that occur over, you know, tens to 100,000 year cycles. So Earth's orbit changes from being round to oval. This changes the amount of solar radiation that the Earth receives, causes the glaciers to advance and retreat. The Earth should be cooling now based on changes in Earth's orbit. So the U.S. National Academy of Science has looked at all of these uh, at the request of, of President Bush, then President Bush, looked at all these natural potential causes and excluded all of them. There is no natural cause. The climate doesn't just change by itself. It has to have a force to change it that's consistent with the laws of thermodynamics. And there is no natural force. The only viable explanation uh, which is supported by tremendous evidence, is that greenhouse gases are trapping heat. Two simple questions. Is the earth warming and what's causing it? Regardless of where you stand on the second question, you have to agree with the first question, which is, is the earth warming? And the answer, which is yes. The evidence is absolutely clear. We know that for trees and animals, that has implications. Some animals, like warm-blooded mammals, can survive at a wide variety of temperatures. For humans, the upper extreme is believed to be 35 Celsius at 100% humidity, or a wet bulb temperature of 35. The key here is 100% humidity. With lower humidity, the temperature can go much higher. This extreme is reached sometimes in different places on Earth, like in India, Pakistan, and Mexico. How many more places will be added to that list? And how hot will temperatures continue to rise? In my line of work, I see us kind of at the front line of the impacts of climate change uh, on the urban environment, and that being, you know, the urban forest. But that also includes, you know, the built landscaped environment that everybody plants their trees in. There's a lot of special circumstances that trees find themselves in, in cities. You know, you being in Winnipeg and me being in Toronto, um, we're both in what used to be prairie land, uh, but now is, you know, built up with concrete and streets and grass and culverts. And, you know, it's we've changed the hydrology, we've changed the ecology and the ecosystems that are now facing the stresses of climate change are under even more stress, given that they're also being impacted by our own practices, be it gardening, pouring extra fertilizer in the soil, lack of water from, you know, increased evaporation from, uh, you know, having so much paved surfaces. What we see most often is a decline in condition in trees as a result of those stressors. And those stressors are only becoming more severe as a result of, you know, both the warming of the climate and the knock-on effects that that is having. So that is leading to a lack of water availability for trees. That's leading to, you know, a greater failure rate in newly planted trees. Um, it's also having an impact on what trees are suitable for planting and growing in cities these days. So the, the target group of species that can survive with the lowest amount of, you know, input maintenance in, in cities is changing. I asked Dan about the kind of trees we should be planting to prepare for this. The climate is changing so fast that a tree planted today is going to experience a different climate within its life cycle. So, you know, if we want to plant a tree that will last 80, 100 years or more, the climate that it's going to experience at the end of the century is going to be very different than it is now. And so that creates a challenge for selecting trees for planting. We need to select a tree that will do well now but will also do well uh, 50 years from now, 100 years from now in a, in a different climate. You kind of have to look at trees that are adapted to a, a, you know, a range of climates. And so 
typically, you know, as kind of a rule of thumb, I like to look at trees that do well in a particular location now, but are also doing well south of here. And so I'm in Northeast Ohio and we're kind of fortunate we're in a kind of a sweet spot as far as that goes, because there's a lot of trees that range from, you know, Southern United States up to the Great Lakes region. And so things uh, like many of the oak species, black gum species, uh, you know, a number of, of species would be, you know, are very suitable for planting in Northeast Ohio, honey locusts. Then, um, you know, there are species that are native to the, to the South, but do well in the North, even though they don't grow there naturally. Those would be also good species. So, for example, uh, bald cypress does well mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities of Minnesota and probably would do well in the Southern Canadian um, Plains provinces. I, I don't know, but I do know it grows well in the Twin Cities yet it's native to the swamps of the Southeast United States. And because it grows in standing water, it's, it's tolerant of low oxygen and you know some of these other kind of urban stresses. The bald cypress is a lovely tree. If you think of the trees growing in the swamps of Louisiana, those are bald cypresses. They are deeply buttressed at the base, which is just gorgeous. They're conifer, but like the larches and tamaracks of Canada, they lose their needles in the fall. They're hardy all the way down to USDA Zone 4, which is roughly equivalent to Canadian hardiness Zone 5. We talked about ash. Black ash is a species, you know, thinking about Canada, very susceptible to EAB. It extends um, it extends well into Canada. There's a nursery in, I think it was Tobin, I can't recall the name of the nursery, but probably a Google search to turn it up. But they, they hybridized black ash with Manchurian ash. And Manchurian ash, native to Asia, has evolutionary history with emerald ash borer, and it's resistant to emerald ash borer. And our research has shown that the hybrid, the black ash, Manchurian ash hybrid is also resistant to emerald ash. And it would be a good species, you know, for the the Plains provinces, the central provinces, Saskatchewan, Manitoba of, of Canada. So the cultivars are Northern gem ash, Northern treasure ash. And so, you know, those are, are some species that could be considered. Um, you know, there's a lot of tough trees, I think that would, that would work in uh, those areas of, of Canada, burr oak, cottonwood, not typically considered a, you know, desirable species, but very tough and does very well in, you know, certain areas um, could be a good selection. Yeah, I know it is used quite a bit in suburbs of Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah. Not maybe not ideal city. for a street tree, but, yeah. you know, if you have some room and some space, I, you know, I love cottonwood. I don't mind the cotton mm-hmm. that floats around. Uh, basswood, box elder. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call that Manitoba maple here. Manitoba maple. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that. I haven't heard that. A lot of people don't realize box elder is a maple. So mm-hmm. in fact it is. And so that's, that's a good name. I'm going to start using Thank you. <laughs> Manitoba maple. Yeah. Thank you. And then there, you know, there's species that are growing at the Southern limit of their distribution. So for example, Northern Michigan, the Great Lakes regions, uh, paper birch mm-hmm. is being stressed by the changing climate in those regions. It's not tolerant of heat. It's not tolerant of drought. Under those conditions of drought and, and heat, it becomes susceptible to bronze birch borer, which mm-hmm. is a native insect in the boreal forest, in the Northern hardwoods forest throughout Canada, up into Alaska. When birch trees become stressed, they become weakened and attacked by bronze birch boring. You're seeing that increasingly happen at the Southern edge of its distribution. Also seeing stress to things like firs and spruces at the Southern edge of their distribution. So climate models project that spruce and fir will be eliminated from Maine and the Northern reaches of the United States as their distribution shifts northward. Uh, But spruce trees are also now beginning to grow in areas uh, in the far north in in the tundra where they hadn't before. It's pretty exciting what hybridizers are doing. It creates a lot of possibilities for people landscaping their yards and cities planting trees, but it does separate us a little bit more from the forest. Then again, my dog is a purebred dachshund. I was born in a hospital, and the chicken I had for dinner last night comes from an animal pretty far removed from nature. One of the things that we think about in the tree care industry is worker safety Mm -hmm. and extreme heat. And so in the United States, 
the number of days too hot to work safely is predicted to double throughout the country from its current level. So in the northern United States, by 2050, northern United States might experience four or five days right now. That'll change to eight to 10. But in the south, southern United States, they're experiencing, you know, 100 days or more. Two years ago, Phoenix, Arizona, the calendar year of it was 2021, more than half the days, more than 180 days was above Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And that's and about 35? About 35. Celsius, yeah. Celsius, yeah. Too hot to work safely. And so, you know, for the tree care injury, that's something that we have to kind of take into account how we adapt, you know, to those hot temperatures. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing with the, with the, as the species move north, insects are moving north and we're seeing a northward spread of mosquitoes that vector diseases and their diseases moving farther north in the United States and in other areas moving up mountains. For example, in Africa, people have lived at higher altitude to avoid malaria, but the mosquitoes moving up into areas now. So that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of dimensions and people talk about, well, it's all this kind of doom and gloom, but these are events that have been, that have already occurred. Mm-hmm. They're documented and we tend to be well adapted to the environment in which we're used to living. And when that changes, it's usually for the worst because we're adapted to what, what we have experienced and it requires change. I asked Joe what you and I can do for trees right now. When a tree establishes itself in the environment, it tends to optimize itself for the conditions that it's growing in. There is a lot of inertia involved in the growth of a tree. If it's growing in an open environment, it'll send its roots out in all directions. It'll spread as far as it can away from its canopy and try to grab water and nutrients from the soil there. When you introduce a stressor to a tree, if you cut into the roots or if you change the soil you know, chemistry or the soil structure, the or change the soil in any way, what you're doing is you're throwing off whatever balance that that tree has given itself to allow itself to grow as best as it can. What climate change will do to that is it'll change the availability of water to that tree. If a tree had been growing in an environment where it was getting a healthy amount of water into the, being you know dumped into the soil from rain every year, if that tree was able to easily rely on a steady input of water from you know rainstorms, from snow melts, it might not have to send its roots that deep. It might you know be able to survive just fine having a nice shallow compact root system and then should the climate then warm from there and a couple degrees means that more water is evaporating after every time it rains well then now the tree doesn't really have the ability to draw enough water from the soil in order to grow new leaves in order to create you know certain uh secondary chemicals that it uses to ward off pests it acts to throw off that balance So climate change being such a rapid change to the environment means that a lot of trees that have established themselves over time cannot quickly grow new roots deeper into the soil. It cannot quickly adapt its natural, you know, phenology, its natural life cycle to to try to counteract those new stresses that are being used to it. So what you'll often see is trees that have been growing just fine for the last 50 to 100 years suddenly starting to die back, not able to create enough new leaves because it's no longer getting enough water. The knock-on effect of that is less water being in the soil means that less nutrients are being taken up from the soil. It means that the soil can degrade, it can erode more easily. There's additional effects that can add on to that over time. So we have the ability in urban environments to try to do what we can to counteract that. So Mm -hmm. what I often tell people to do is if they have a big old tree in their yard and they're noticing the tree's not sending out as many new leaves, it's starting to have some dieback at the top. First thing I look at is what's the soil like surrounding the tree? What sort of environment is it growing in? You can do a lot of things to try to counteract those impacts from climate change. If you have a lot of grass growing above the roots of a tree, well, the roots of that grass are going to compete with the tree roots. They're going to pull that limited amount of water from the soil before the tree's roots can drink them up. So what we like to recommend is to replace sod with mulch. 
surrounding mm-hmm. a tree's base. And that does two things. It removes that competition from the roots of lawn grass and it helps insulate the soil. It can create a bed that holds the water close to the surface. It doesn't physically hold the water close to the surface, but what it does is it slows the loss of water through evaporation. It, it keeps the soil from warming to a point where it starts to transpire more water out of the soil. So it slows the filtration of water through the soil and allowing the tree to utilize more of the water that goes into the soil from rain or from watering your tree to, to keep it healthy. Can we just water the trees more? Yeah. (laughs) If if you ask me to say one thing, just give one line to help trees survive, it's water your trees. It's it's a huge problem, especially, I'm going to say this anecdotally, with lack of funding in city departments to maintain trees. What we deal with a lot are trees that get planted and then never get watered, or they don't have their stakes removed and the stake straps can rub the tree and cause wounds, or trees might get fertilized once, grow great for a year, but whatever lack of nutrients, you know, there was in the soil was never really treated after that. So what we like to try to tell people is to maintain that sort of care. Um, If you get a tree planted in your front yard, say the city comes by and they plant a tree in your front yard, don't count on the city to come by and water that tree because most likely they won't. Whether or not you like having a tree in your front yard, I know we deal with a lot of people who will will bicker over whether or not a tree they plant in their front yard is, is a city tree or not. A lot of people here in Toronto, there's a tree planting program where they will come and plant a tree with Within the boulevard or within the right of way, whatever you call the front portion of the property that's under municipal ownership. A lot of people don't want trees there because they don't want the, the responsibility of having to take care of that tree because they know the city is not going to come by and do it for them. But if a tree does end up there, if you buy a house that has a tree in the front yard, we always try to recommend maintain the area surrounding that tree underneath its strip line you know, underneath its branches, keep the soil aerated, try not to plant too many things that might compete with it, low maintenance, shade tolerant plants, mulching around the base of the tree and watering it. It's very easy to go out, especially during the the warm season, just pick up a little bit of soil in your hands and try to to rub it in between your fingers, feel the texture of the soil, feel if there's any moisture in there. If it crumbles in your hands, then there's not enough water in it. If you're not feeling getting any water out of that soil right above the tree roots, then the tree's not water out of that soil. Mm-hmm. So it's best to just try to make sure that you keep the keep the soil hydrated, but not saturated. Uh, an easy way to, to make sure of that is to just keep doing that, that finger test, just to get a little bit of soil after you water a tree. If you're squeezing water out of that soil, then it's still saturated. But if it's wet and clumpy and can still break apart, then that's ideal. That's Mm -hmm. what it's at what's called field capacity. It means there is enough water in the soil for the trees to drink it up, but it's not too much that the tree is submerged around. So trees like to have an, an equal balance of air and water and soil particles. To, to maintain its nutrient trans, to drink up water, to send waste products into the soil, to interact with fungi in the soil. We try to just teach people the sort of economics of a tree to try mm-hmm. to explain what the, the inputs and the outputs are, what the tree needs to survive and how to counteract deficits that a tree might face, especially now. I have definitely been guilty of planting too much under the tree in my front yard in Toronto. I just didn't have much space to garden in, and I needed more. No wonder my tree grew so much more slowly than my neighbors. Folks, we're going to take another break to hear what Ian's doing at head office, then we'll be back to hear more about trees and climate change. Find out what's growing on. Follow Canada's local gardener magazine on social media. Explore the colorful world of gardening with us. Discover our special offers and take part in our online contests. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get growing with us. And we're back. I had a question for Joe. If I'm planting a tree, I guess now I might be inclined to plant something that is closer to the top zone that I'm in. You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm in zone three, I might choose to plant a zone three tree, but I don't see climate change affecting a zone one tree. Well, now they they actually can. So Mm -hmm. there are certain species that have been found to not be that, I would say, resilient to climate change. 
certain species that are native to the boreal forests of Canada will tend to have the least sort of the least amount of sustainability through climate change unfortunately a lot of the research is showing that there is a shifting going on of tree growing ranges so some trees that might have been doing well in your areas be that um, certain types of cottonwoods like the balsam poplar or white birch or balsam fir and hemlock a lot of those tree species which are native to canadian forests and grow up into zone one are also the most likely to suffer from the negative impacts of those increased droughts during the summer the increased heat waves because those are trees that are used to growing in a cool moist environment when the soil stays moist and cool throughout the summer those are trees that are used to growing in you know native forests that are dense and full of deep rich soil that can hold that water in them. so there are certain species that that we are trending away from recommending trending away from seeing as being sustainable in cities and more towards trees that are native further south that do well in environments where it dries out more often. So that that might be recommending planting more oaks. Oaks like drier soils. That could be looking at different pine species. So eastern white pine is one of those species that may not be resilient in the face of climate change, but then there are pine species that grow in the states where the soil can be more sandy, more porous, can dry out more easily, and the tree can survive that. So, you know, shortleaf pine, Pinus virginiana, it's very similar to red pine, but it just grows further south. So that might be a tree that can start to supplant some of those pine plantations that can start to be more suitable for growing in in Canada, given where the climate's going in terms of warming. We don't want that to be the case, but unfortunately, that's the reality we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at recommending species from Southern climates because we're going to be in those conditions soon enough. Now, I chat with my guests before and after and sometimes during the interview. Having a tree guy at my disposal, I wanted to ask Dan about Pando. Pando is the quaking aspen tree colony in Utah that is thousands of years old. Every tree is a clone of a single male tree, and they all have a huge underground root system. Pando is receding now, though, possibly because of drought and human development. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And and aspen trees in this in the central intermountain and mountain states of the central U.S. are experiencing increased stress from diseases and things. I, I don't know the details of that particular clone. I know of it, but aspen in air, in certain areas, aspen mortality is increasing. Their distribution is shrinking, but in other areas, aspen is increasing their distribution and replacing areas where pines used to dominate as, as it gets warmer. And, you know, there's a dynamic that's going on. There's winners and losers when it comes to trees and climate change, depending on the particular location and, and how that environment is changing. Yeah, I mean, Canada's north could become arable farmland. Yes, uh, it will. I just read an article about Alaska where they're looking at auctioning off some land for farming now that wasn't mm-hmm. really suitable previously. What do you think is going to happen to people through all this? That will be, well, highly dependent on a couple things. One, the biggest uncertainty in how much the climate's going to warm in the future is policy, government policy, and human behavior. And so uh, the amount of warming is going to be dependent on the trajectory of, of emissions. Right now, greenhouse gas emissions are continuing to increase, and that has to change quickly if we're going to limit warming to you know tolerable levels. Now in certain areas of the world, which also tend to be uh, less developed in poorer areas, the heat is already intolerable. Um, we saw the devastation of flooding in Pakistan, the heat, water insecurity in Africa and the Mideast. The, the climate is going to change in ways that, that make some areas very unlivable. And it's going to result ultimately in more migration unless the countries, you know, have the resources and are able to develop strategies to adapt to that extreme heat. There are lots of ways humans can overcome the warming atmosphere for ourselves. We're a very innovative species. For instance, we can use different technologies in buildings to reduce heat, like cooling with deep water, which is done in Toronto's financial district. Essentially, water is drawn from deep in Lake Ontario, where it's 4 degrees Celsius, and circulated through heat exchangers before being treated and going into the city's municipal water supply. 
That's just one of several new technologies. But for every animal or plant that dies around us from climate change, there are untold differences that we'll have to contend with because we're all a part of the world biosphere. You know, this kind of goes back to what do you do about what's here and what do you do about So what we do about existing trees is we try to counteract the impacts and effects that are being done to trees first and foremost. So that is making trees more resilient through micro level changes to their growing environments, improving the soils. One thing that Davy's doing in terms of ensuring continued capability of trees to survive is new applications into the soil. Um, one thing that's becoming very popular and that Davy's pioneering uh, is biochar. So biochar is an additive that can be mixed into topsoil that's made of carbonized tree material. So that's tree trunks, leaves, roots that are cooked until all you have left are the minerals and carbon that makes up the structure of the tree. And that's then ground down and pulverized and mixed in with the topsoil. And what that does is it provides sort of a matrix for soil to cling to that helps increase water retention. And it also increases mineral availability because other minerals in the soil can bind to it and through the increased water retention can help roots draw more moisture, draw more nutrients, especially in stressed environments, in compacted or dried soils. So that is something that's Dave, that Davy's doing to be proactive, to improve the growing environments that trees are in, in addition to our normal fertilization, pruning, watering that we recommend that is just best practices for all trees. We are also trying to be proactive in terms of providing the best environment for trees to grow in and then the best you know, tree species to be selected for planting. So a lot of what we do are working with planting programs, management plans, planting plans. We'll recommend tree species that are best suited to local environments. So here in Eastern Canada, you know, we're starting to see and plant and recommend species that are native to the Eastern US, are, you know, well suited for growing south of the border, but also can grow here, also are tied into the, the native ecosystems where they exist down in the U.S. So um, flowering dogwood, cucumber magnolia, I'm sure these are trees that you've been able to find at nurseries for decades in Canada, but those are trees that aren't, you know, they either have not grown widespread in Canada. I know flowering dogwood is endangered in Canada because it never really had a lot of range here to begin with, but you do find a lot of flowering dogwood down in the States. And that is a tree that you can plant up here. And it's a tree that I've seen all across the plains in the U.S., you know, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Minnesota. I don't think you can plant it in Winnipeg, can you? I don't Maybe not yet. Here. Maybe not oh. yet. <laughs> But that's the thing okay. is so long as you're providing it a suitable environment to grow in, so long as you can find it at a local nursery where they can prove that they can grow it here. Once those trees become available, those are the trees that we recommend because those are what we're, you know, what we can look at as like the new pioneer urban trees, the trees that can help replace the trees that may not be present in our urban forests pretty soon. We have to replace all the ash trees that are either being killed by the EAB or are being removed before the EAB gets to a certain area. And a lot of those trees are being replaced with the, the lindens that I was talking about before, the elms that I was talking about before. But soon they can also be replaced with pin oaks and different, you know, different varieties of trees that you can get down in the States, tulip poplars and black gums and sweet gums. Those are trees that you'll see on the West Coast because it doesn't get very cold out there. But in Eastern Canada, it's not going to get that cold in the winter soon enough. So mm -hmm. those are trees that might do well here. And those are trees that are proven to be great trees as street trees in places like Michigan and Illinois and New York, that you look at the way that the hardiness zones are changing. We're all expected to add one or two hardiness zones, you know, over the next 30 years or so. So if we might be in hardiness zone 3A or 3B, you might be in 4B or 5A before 2040. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where things are trending. I know it's going to be pretty awful getting there, yeah. but that doesn't sound so bad. That's, that's kind of an unfortunate drawback to it because mm -hmm. it may seem exciting at first. It may be very appealing as a gardener. I have a, I have a backyard garden. I'm more than happy to grow watermelons and I successfully grew watermelons last year. And I didn't think I would be able to do that after I moved up to Canada. But when you get enough straight weeks above 30 degrees Celsius, even though that's above average for high temperatures, 
it starts to become apparent that that's, that's the reality now. Now, unfortunately, and research has shown is that even though trees can have positive effects, positive impacts from climate change, from warmer weather, at the same time, and this goes back to what I said about like the inertia of trees, what trees like to grow in, those positive impacts may only last a few years. You might have warmer weather allowing a tree in a northern environment to grow much faster, but then that tree is also much more stressed. That tree is, you know, facing drier soil. It's it's not taking up as many nutrients. So some of the research has shown that a tree in a warmer environment might grow really well for about five or 10 years, but then rapidly run out of its capacity for taking up new nutrients. It might be running out of water to take out of the soil because the soil is drying out that much more quickly. The soil that the tree grows in has been there for so long. The last time that all the soils rapidly changed in Canada was during the last ice age. All of the environments that the trees are growing in have been about the same for 10,000 years. And now when Mm -hmm. it all changes in the span of 20 to 50 years, that's really not enough time for an ecosystem to adapt. So you might have that flourishing of new growth of new trees, but then all those older trees will really quickly start to decline. And that's, that's where climate change will really rear its ugly head is a loss of native landscapes and a loss of forest ecosystems as a result from those really rapid changes. So you might have flourishing gardens in the city, but you can have widespread pests going through the forest and that can go through the cities as well as we've seen with DAB. I'd say it's more negative than positive and we try to find the positive in the negatives, but it's going to be a challenge. And we're going to turn to Dan now to end this discussion. I think there's reason to be optimistic. I think, you know, we're already seeing a a transformation in our energy systems. Mm -hmm. That's going to continue. Uh, The Inflation Reduction Act in the United States that was just passed has a lot of components that are significant to climate incentives for increasing renewable energy. I think transportation systems will become more efficient. I I don't underestimate the ability of of humans to adapt and, and be creative. And I think it'll be interesting to, you know, in 20 years to kind of look back. I think we've turned a corner. Well, folks, that was a little less hopeful than my podcast so far, but it was really interesting for me to learn so much from Dan and Joe about trees in this brave new world. One big takeaway from this podcast, water your trees. I've been pretty lackadaisical about it for the past few years, but when all the snow melts and the ground dries up, I'm going to start giving my gentle giant some additional love and attention. I want to thank Dan Herms and Joe Steinfeld for taking time to talk to me and to Davy Tree for making them available. I also want to thank Yasmin Conception, our producer, Carl Thompson, our graphic designer, Ian Leet, our president, and of course the Government of Canada for the funds to make flora and fauna possible. 